Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, July the 2nd, 2023. Sundays are a good day to talk about female criminals. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe uh, nobody else is paying attention and female criminals can take over the world. We did a show uh, on female criminals a few months ago with an English author, BZ Marsh, on the East End villainesses who ran the London of 1946. Uh, her book is Queen of Thieves. It's an interesting book. It's a novel, but um, it's very factual in its own way, very convincing, imagining that uh, the gangs of London were run by women. But that was fiction. Today, we're talking um, with another female author, Deborah Benella, who uh, is very senior editorially at Vice magazine. She runs their Latin American operation, and she has a new book out, fascinating new book, Narcos. The Secret Rise of Women in Latin American Cartels. The book is out later in July. Uh, and she's joining us from Mexico City. Uh, Deborah, congratulations on the new book. Thank you. I'm excited to, to be here to talk about it. Did you all, always fancy yourself as a bit of a gangsteress, or uh, <laughs> is, am I not taking it seriously enough? Um, I do not consider myself a gangsteress at all, but um, I did always, you know, I started off in journalism in London covering business and I used to go to the Frontline Club a lot, which I'm sure you know, and I would see, um, you know, people presenting their books there from foreign lands. So I definitely always saw myself as reporting from abroad, definitely. And you cover, as I said, you cover Latin America for... Um... Uh, for Vice. Uh, I'm not sure where the book came from, but I know um, a few years ago you had a piece in Vice News, uh, Las Patronas, The Rise of Female Drug Bosses in Latin America. When did you first stumble on this story? So when I first arrived in Mexico about 20 years ago, the drug war uh, had just launched. The drug war launched in 2006. The then president um, set the, the sort of government forces against Mexico's powerful drug cartels. And so when I was a daily news reporter, um, the, the drug war and organized crime was very much a part of the daily beat. So right from the time I was in Mexico, I was covering the trade. Um, and then I sort of stopped, moved off from breaking news. I was doing a lot of video and I moved into working for uh, a think tank for a few years, Insight Crime, which covers organized crime in the Americas. And that was where I really sort of got a very solid understanding of the way that organized crime works regionally in Latin America. Um, and you know, how, how certain cartels have, have this global reach. Um, and so within the context of that job, I sort of started noticing the way that women were portrayed and perceived and, and approached um, by uh, mostly guys covering organized crime, to be honest. Um, and also, as you know, Andrew, like in terms of narratives and legend, like I feel like organized crime has such strongly established narratives and they are, you know, the Pablo Escobar's, the, the Chapo Guzman's, you know, these, these massively well-known. Uh, yeah, it's sort of almost, uh, I don't know whether they're folk heroes or anti-folk heroes, but the... Um... 
the equivalent of the gangster from America. And of course, you're turning the the conventional narrative on its head in terms of women as victims. We did a show, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Catherine Corcoran. Yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, she wrote a wonderful book last year, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. And the murder of this particular very brave uh, journalist was, of course, a female. So the narrative for you, um, Deborah, is turned on its head. Usually it's the women who is the victim. Now it's the the, vic the, the, the female who is the perpetrator of injustice. Well, I also I felt like the way that women were viewed in the in the drug trade was very sort of one dimensional, you know. They were either these, you know, the, the wives or the, the the sort of trophy girlfriends of these well-known men, or they were these outliers, you know, the odd murderer with the, you know, the killer with the, the Instagram profile and the golden gun. And it just seemed to me like such a narrow way to look at, at women. And I, I think like because of the nature of the drug trade and the fact that it's so in the shadows, I think it's harder for us to see trends and you know, the reality of, of what's happening there because it's so difficult to, to document and, and that in itself was kind of a challenge. So it's not a criticism so much of, of what has gone before, but I felt like it would be super interesting to delve into um, women and cases that I were finding of high-ranking women in the cartel to sort of understand a little bit more about how they moved, how they got power, how they kept it, how they used it, um, and how that sort of compared to what is our sort of popular broad understanding of how women work in the criminal underworld? Right. Um, and, and of course, the, uh, an alternative narrative to the one surrounding people like Pablo Escobar. A few months ago, uh, Deborah, we did a, a fascinating show, I thought, with uh, a journalist based in Hungary who wrote a book about uh, the serial killing of men in a small Hungarian village after the First World War, in which, I don't know, maybe 100 or 200 men were murdered uh, by their wives and their girlfriends, sometimes even their mothers, perhaps because of the, the, the cruelty uh, as a result of them coming back from the First World War. Not that, of course, that justifies mass murder. Is there a socioeconomic, a political narrative to, to narcos? Uh, are some of these women reacting to the uh, to the to the Pablo Escobars and the El Chapo Guzmans and their male dominance, or is that uh, simplistic and, and wishful thinking? I mean, I think there are socioeconomic factors, but it's they aren't vengeful. I don't think this is about women, sort of, you know showing showing what they're made of and like getting back at these guys who've held them down their whole lives i don't think you know i think uh the patriarchy and and misogyny in latin america is very widespread but it's perpetrated by women as much as men um their attitudes that are that are so sort of deep into latin american culture i think the socioeconomic realities for a lot of women in this region is there's very little um social mobility um opportunity for success you know that's something that affects a lot of people because of the class realities and the inequalities but it's very pronounced with women because yeah i think especially in working class communities um there's a lot of intrafamilial violence and the 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 sort of you know male dominance that we see in other in other societies and cultures manifests its own way here but i think like for a lot of women it's, it's important to remember that drug trafficking organizations, 
despite the the sort of uh, brainstorming of Trump, they they are not ideologically motivated organizations. You know, these are largely viscerally capitalist organ organisms whose primary reason for existence is producing and selling drugs mostly in the United States. So what they present to women is a business opportunity, you know, an opportunity to... to right, so they are the queens of thieves, as, uh, as BZ Marsh put it. Um, we've done a number of shows on the drug industry and the drug epidemic. One, I'm sure you're familiar with his work too, Sam Quinones, uh, on his book on fentanyl. And he and, he, he and I talked about the fentanyl laboratories in Mexico, also noting that actually with these rise of these new synthetic drugs, a lot of it now was coming from Asia. You're, you're the, the vice person in, um, in, in Latin America. So I, I assume you've spent a lot of time looking at this industry. You noted the way in which Trump simplifies Latin America into just a place that brings drugs into, a, into the United States. Um, how how um how accurate is some of the more dire representations of Mexico, Central America when it comes to drugs in the United States? Do you mean representation where in the media? Well, representation in the sense that, especially in the right wing press, as you said earlier, it's represented as a region dominated by drug dealers and the drug industry and drug economics. There are no jobs except for people who smuggle uh, drugs. Uh, you know, Quinones didn't really focus on that, but he did talk about the importance of the, synth the synthetic drug industry to, to the region. Yeah. What's I mean, your take? I mean, I know it's a, it's a big subject and it's very controversial. I mean, fentanyl has been a massive business boom for the cartels. And I think its rise and its value to them in their sort of business model really questions the, the the entire point of prohibition because of course they're synthesizing a drug that was sort of fed to people by the pharmaceutical industries um which which makes it differ very much so from like cocaine or methamphetamine or you know these sort of different different compounds that they've been depending on for so many years um i think you know, it's very real that Latin America's economies are very reliant on drug money um, and, and that drug trafficking and the profits to be derived from it has corrupted governance, has corrupted legal and justice institutions around the region. You know, in Mexico, I don't know whether it's still this high, but there was sort of a 95% impunity rate for people who were committing homicides and other serious crimes, you know, the, the, the ability of the state and the political will behind it to investigate and prosecute is low. And often what you see in Latin America, in places like Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras, um, is that the American influence in terms of investigating and prosecuting drug kingpins is, is enormous. And in a country like Guatemala, for example, where I did a lot of field research for the book, the, the anti-narcotics prosecutor basically said to me, you know, we just do what the, what the Americans tell us. Like they don't have the resources and, and the like will to, to do deep dive investigations a lot of the time. And, you know, especially because you also see that the consequences for that um, are dire. You know, a lot of prosecutors here are killed, a lot of journalists, as you know. Um, and so no one wants to be 
that lawyer, that prosecutor who's bringing that person in. And of course, if you're in, you know, sitting in a in a courthouse in New York, it's a lot easier for you to to send that order down. Um, but but to your point about you know um, the region in general and like synthetics. Synthetics have also, you know, the, la the the sort of faltering reliance on plant-based drugs like cocaine, which comes from coca, heroin, which comes from poppy, and of course marijuana. Synthetics allow the cartels to kind of cut out the the farmers and the the sort of agricultural element of the drug trade and just start importing these things directly from China and India and the Netherlands. Get them all, you know, put them all in a lab, hire a chemist, and 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 they get it done. And so it, it's kind of a process that's simpler in a way because there's less humans involved, less negotiation of territory and price, and you know, harvest seasons and all that kind of thing. And and I'd emphasize like the presence of women in the cartels has ranged from everything to you know, Chapo's chief money launderer was a woman. I found killers. I found transport organizers. And I, and I think the idea that we have about um, the cartels being these deeply misogynist organizations, I think, yes, because you do see a lot of violence perpetrated against women. But I also think if they find women who are good at jobs and good at certain roles, they're not going to not employ them. Because yeah, it's not really surprising. I mean, I'm sure that the same is true across business of any kind, legitimate or, or, or illegitimate. I wonder also, uh, Deborah, how this fits into the other dominant narrative in the United States about Latin America, um, immigrants, illegal immigrants. We've done many shows on this one with the author of Salito. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. It's a big hit in the U.S. now. Uh, Javier Zamora uh, has a book out, Salito, a book about how he as a nine-year-old walked, I think, from El Salvador to the United States. How closely bound up is the refugee crisis and the drug business. They're often presented in the same way. Is that, again, too simplistic? I mean, they're fundamentally connected. So many of the thousands of people that you see fleeing countries like Honduras and El Salvador, as well as states in Mexico, such as Michoacan and uh, Sinaloa, a lot of those people have been displaced by either street gangs, in the case of Central America, or drug cartels or factions of drug cartels in uh, in Mexico. There are other factors, of course, especially climate change and economic migration is now a major factor. But yes, absolutely. Crime lords here, you know, I spend a lot of time investigating extortion in Central America, the Mara Salvatrucha, um, street gangs, essentially tax everyone living in certain neighborhoods. And if you can't pay, you're either killed or your business is burnt down, you're your, your family is killed. Like there are very dire consequences for not doing what you're told to do or doing what you're asked to do. Extortion is also rife in Mexico. Um, and the drug cartels have moved into so many different businesses in Mexico. They're in mining. They're controlling the lime business in, in the southern state of Michoacan. And of course, having that kind of muscle and sort of violence hovering over communities and businesses has a tremendous effect on people's quality of life and like even you know their, their their chances of survival so you have a lot of migration that's very much um you know pushed pushed north to to the united states from different parts of, of the region and you know who's perpetrating that violence differs and like there are so many different groups and 
I think the the cartels are very different to the the street gangs that you see in Central America. But I've I've sort of spent a lot of time with both of those organisms just to see sort of how women fared within them. And and there's no doubt that they're a massive threat and a massive migration push. Yeah, and of course the the role of women in that um, as victims of violence, political violence, drug violence. Uh, carries over into the drug business. Did you find in terms of the conversations you've had with some of these women, um, they, and, and as you acknowledge, they, they acknowledge their own guilt. They're not claiming to be angels um, in any way. Um, did they have any sense of guilt in the context of families and children and mothers? They did. That perhaps yeah. would be more than a, a typical male, a, a Pablo... Escobar or an El Chapo Guzman? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you never, there are certain um, female drug traffickers here who are known as narco mammies, like narco mums. You would never hear Chapo referred to as a narco papi, even though he has several children, a lot of them with different mothers. Like, you know, he's, he's a dad, he has his, his, his responsibilities. But for some reason, as women, that's more emphasized in terms of our societal role and how it kind of conflicts with the, you know, this these sort of criminal acts. I found that very interesting and, and sort of took it apart a little bit in the book. But, you know, you Chapo's chief um, money launderer was a woman called Guadalupe Fernandez Valencia. Um, she was arrested about a month after Chapo had been arrested and, and uh, extradited to Chicago, where she pleaded guilty. And basically, if you plead guilty, you're agreeing to collaborate with US law enforcement behind closed doors, you're reducing your sentence. Uh, but she came from uh, a, a family of drug traffickers. She'd been in the drug business. Yeah, and it got in the news uh, back in 2019, a lot of headlines in Chicago. Was he? Was it in Chicago that she in was? Chicago, yeah. So she pleaded guilty and she sort of sank from view. And then there was, there was this other woman called Luz Fajardo Campos who was also trafficking out of Sinaloa. She managed to kind of create a sort of independent faction of the Sinaloa cartel, allegedly spoke to El Chapo on the phone frequently. Um, when she was arrested, her two sons were murdered. She was arrested on a trip to Colombia. Her two sons were promptly murdered, her adult sons. And so when she was extradited to the, despite the fact, by the way, that she had warned um, the Colombian and DEA prosecutors who arrested her that that was her fear, but they were killed. She was extradited to the US um, and she essentially refused to plead guilty. She refused to cooperate because a lot of her family still live in Sinaloa um, and its capital, Culiacan. And she, you know, after losing her sons like that, she didn't want to put any more of her family at risk. And I think the, the, the signal she sent by pleading innocent and going to trial is that I'm not collaborating with US law enforcement. So in a way that kind of that kind of gives some protection to the people that she's that she has left on the outside. So I think she definitely did that out of family loyalty and she was she was according to her criminal lawyer pretty destroyed by what happened to her kids and her responsibility for that. Um you know whether whether men have those same feelings I would I mean I would think yes. I can't imagine that fathers have any less remorse if their if their families are affected by this um and you know it's it's a difficult question to answer in the sense that i don't want to get into kind of nature derivative yeah i mean uh, we all remember the end the the final scene in the godfather three when uh 
uh, Michael Corleone's daughter was killed, which essentially killed him as a father. And he was presented as a very strong family man. Of course, he was a, a fictional character. What about Deborah, the politics of all this. Is there any evidence in your research and experience of these people being having a, a Robin Hood-like quality? Mexico, Mexican politics, and certainly Central American politics is notorious for its corruption, for its military rule, for the unaccountability of government. Um, is there any evidence that these people are running these businesses and operating in a way that they're redistributing their illegal wealth within their own communities? Or is that, again, uh, a Hollywood narrative? I think there is definitely an admiration from grassroots communities who see the likes of El Chapo or Digna Valle or Luz in my book, you know, who see people who are very come from very humble roots and sort of are seen to make something of themselves, you know. And like I was saying before, it's very hard if you're born in rural Latin America to go from rags to riches. And the drug trade afforded people that. And I think people who came from those communities respected that. You know, in, in Culiacán, there is a chapel dedicated to um, Jesus Malverde, who is the narco, informally the narco patron saint, but the the, cha the chapel is kind of littered with paraphernalia and souvenirs that you can buy that are dedicated to chapel and his family and, you know, the women who surrounded him, etc. So there is a, definitely a culture of, of idolatry in certain parts. I would say, though, I think that certainly in Mexico, that's fading a little as we see this generational shift move from you know, the sort of godfathers of, of the of the Mexican drug trade, if you like, more into this kind of social media obsessed, um, instant gratification generation, in, in Mexico's case, Chapo Sons, um, who have much more of a reputation for uh, sort of brutal violence, um, that they, 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 they've sort of discarded the old rules of their fathers um, before them, which I, I think is very true too. You know, the people that I've spoken to in Culiacan do talk about how things were more measured when the older generation were in charge. And certainly in Mexico over the last 15 years, you have seen violence on steroids that was, you know, this arms race sort of started by the Setas that was back in the early 2000s. They sort of started this arms race and, and levels of violence that we haven't seen in the drug trade before. So there's definitely been this sort of generational shift. And in turn, that's made communities just less uh, admiring of them in some in some parts, you know. But like I talk about in the book, you know, if you go to Sinaloa um, and you spend time in Culiacan, Chapel's wife, Emma Coronel, who was is probably the most kind of best known woman in the drug trade publicly because she was a, a, a daily appearance at um, Chapel's trial. There is a, a style, a, a sort of physical style that's been sort of um, perpetrated by her and women like her. It's called La Buchona. Think kind of Kim Kardashian, um, but sort of whiter, fuller, huge boobs, pumped up pompies, you know, the kind of physique. The, 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 the Florida look, Deborah. Right. But the kind of look that really cannot be acquired in a gym. I mean, you have to have had surgery to get this look. You know, I've had plastic surgeons tell me that they've taken out the last the last rib of the rib cage so they can sort of bring 
the waist in a little smaller. Um, and so when you go to certain parts of, of not, not just Mexico, as you say, like especially as well in the US where Latina communities are very prominent, this look, this Buchona look is very much a, a thing. And like part of that is sort of an aspiration to the sort of glamour and experience of being a narco wife or being part of that narco culture and, and the riches and luxuries that it promises, I think. Yeah, I guess it's plastic surgeons are doing well out of all, all, all this too. Um, we did a show, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the writer Leopoldo Guta. He lives both in Mexico City and in New York. He's an interesting character. He has a book out, Piñata, again, some fiction, sort of apocalyptic fiction. And he imagines a future in which the living dead layer Mexico City. Uh, Mexico City is, of course, a city of great memories and layers um is there anything different about any of this given the complexity the bloodiness the heroism the color of mexico of mexican uh history deborah is this just the next chapter in the history of crime and violence in the region are you talking about the involvement of women specifically well in women but just broadly also i mean women were involved in violence pre pre-drug business as well as you suggest yeah it's 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 a little hard to be terribly optimistic about the future of mexico's drug trade given the current state of affairs the bilateral security relationship is in in a very bad state the biden administration and the the administration of andres manuel the president of mexico has 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 not been good since he took power in in 2018 just a few weeks ago Andres Manuel said publicly that there is no fentanyl in Mexico. Mexico doesn't produce it, um, even though his own uh, Secretary of Defense said a few weeks later that they found seven tons. They found seven tons of fentanyl in Mexico over the last five years, which is a huge amount for that drug because it's so potent. Um, so there's that. And also just, you know, you've had this kind of breakdown of the rule of law in so many parts of Mexico, its institutions and the, you, no matter who's in the White House, you kind of see this, the, the maintenance of a certain status quo, you know, the kingpin strategy, so, or, or, or probably now the queenpin strategy too, right? You bring in the powerful leaders um, and that's going to solve the problem. And we saw with the, the, the very drawn out prosecution and, and like life sentence handed down to Chapo Guzman, the Sinaloa cartel is as powerful as it's ever been. You're now seeing power vacuums being filmed around, filled around the country. The amount of drugs passing over the U.S.-Mexico border has not gone down. Mexico now has its own drug consumption problem before everything kind of went to the Americans apart from yeah. that. And now Mexicans are big consumers of methamphetamine. Um, so it's, it's, hard, it's hard to be optimistic and... You know, I just, I just hope that at some point someone might have some new ideas on how. To yeah, manage. I don't know. Um, I mean, is there American narrative here? Of course, the cliche, the old cliche about America and uh, U.S. and Latin America is when America caught a cold, Latin America caught pneumonia. When Americans get high, does uh, could we extend that uh, cliche and uh, Latin America gets n narco? mafias is the connection there i mean if americans stop buying illegal drugs would this 
address the problem. Not that, of course, we can blame everything on Americans, even if we like to sometimes on this show. Right. I mean, when you look at the latest business boom for the, for the Sinaloa cartel and the new generation Jalisco cartel, that's definitely been fentanyl. And the opioid crisis, which is very much an American problem and to some extent a Canadian one, was one that was sparked by the pharmaceutical companies who, by the way, did have to pay very heavy fines and got the, their... The sacklers of the world, right? Right, but no one went to jail for lying about Oxycontin and, and other types of... Right, they just had their names taken down from libraries, museums. Right. But, but that boom was one that wasn't really even engineered by the cartels or fed by it. That was created by the pharmaceuticals. And of course, the cartels are very agile, capitalist organisms. They saw an opportunity and they took it. And so now illicit fentanyl is one of the biggest causes of overdose in the U.S. Um, but that's kind of that's a very recent development. I mean, it's happened over the you know, within the last decade so it's it's a it's sort of a very interesting tangent to what we were seeing before with cocaine and heroin consumption. Um, but Mexico doesn't have an opioid problem. And the illegal opioids sold in Mexico are sold to American and Canadian tourists buying pills and pharmacies. You know, the, the cartels have also, by the way, infiltrated Mexico's pharmaceutical system. Um, but yeah, I mean, as long as the demand for drugs, legal or illegal, exists the, the the american market and increasingly europe continue to be the biggest business opportunities for the cartels and until they until that demand goes away i can't really see anything shifting dramatically unless we see you know changes to the 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 anti-narcotic strategy i mean i i don't think that ending prohibition is a silver bullet i think that the cartels now have their their hands in so many different criminal markets outside of the drug business, like mining and extortion and gas and what have you. But probably it would save more lives if, uh, you know, drugs, we, people who were taking drugs knew what was in those drugs because the biggest cause of overdose, of course, is, is adulteration or like, you know, overdose comes from too much fentanyl um, so if you saw drugs being produced in a way that was regulated and taxed, you would probably bring down overdoses. But it's a very complicated problem, as you know, but it would be great to see some new thinking on it for sure. Well, you've definitely brought some new thinking on it, at least in terms of the what you call the secret rise of women in Latin American Latin America drug cartels. It's a, a very interesting book and a very brave book, uh, Deborah. What about your role? As I said, we did, we've done shows on um, the assassination of female journalists in Mexico. Uh, have, have you, I assume you've had to be pretty careful. I mean, both in terms of your visibility as the vice correspondent there and in terms of this particular project. Uh, did... did are you, I mean, you've, you've talked to a lot of these female narcas. Uh, did you always feel safe? I can't say always. There were definitely points where I was surprised at the levels of access I got. Um, I went to investigate one of the women in Honduras, rural Honduras. I knew she wouldn't be there because she had done her time in the U.S., been released into immigration detention and was kind of fighting deportation. Um, but when I went to her village, 
one of the women who welcomed me into her home got Digna on video phone. So mm. I, I did sort of end up being face to face with her. She'd already said no to a couple of interviews. And I, I was, I was thinking, is she putting everything together and realizing I'm the person that she's already told no twice. Um, but I think by that point, a lot of her family's organization had been dismantled. Her brothers who were kind of violent Vikings had also been um, condemned in the US, convicted in the US, sorry. Um, but yeah, there were definitely moments where I felt like it was it was sketchy. But, you know, the, the women I, cho I chose to cover were mostly women had been through the US justice system. So on via PACER, I could find court transcripts you know, conversations. I could create scenes in the book that were recounted by these women in the US courts. Access to that kind of um, documentation here in Mexico and other parts of the region are really, really hard. So I was sort of limited by that. So I did a lot of time pouring through legal documents um, at my desk. You know, there was a lot of field work, but I think the perception of it was perhaps less... I was I was perhaps less exposed, and of course, you know, I'm I was really careful about putting things in there that I knew could have really direct repercussions. Mm. And I have to admit, there is a certain there is a, a little bit of anxiety um, in terms of the book actually hitting the shelves. Um, a friend of mine, I was having coffee with her the other day, and she asked me whether I was nervous about it, and I said, "No, I haven't really thought about it." And then promptly went home and had a terrible nightmare about being a pursued through the streets of Mexico City. So I think there is like some some underlying anxiety, but I don't feel like I took any irresponsible risks. And every time there was risk, it always resulted in such great material that it, it very much felt worth it. And should you be as, as fearful in terms of the repercussions of this book from law enforcement than from uh, the narcos themselves? I mean, only in the sense that I'm sort of calling them on their sort of uh, slightly male-dominated approach to things, and I think I think they can take the criticism. Only slightly, Deborah. <laughs> I think they can take the criticism, um, and I think it's something that they're all aware of. You know, like as a Bonnie Clapper, who's who's quoted repeatedly in the book and represented a number of the women, she said, you know, even if there is a female chapel out there, no one's no one's looking for her, you know, because it's so outside this sort of, you know, narrative of the drug trade, that it's it's beyond our comprehension that there could possibly be a woman as as powerful as Chapel. But we'll see. I mean, that's the thing about the, uh, the criminal underworld. You know, it takes us a while to really catch up and understand the reality of things.